Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. We are grabbing from the canine atopic dermatitis mailbag today. So on my Instagram stories, I put up a question sticker and just asked, what are some of your questions about canine atopic dermatitis? As a lot of you know, we're going through some medical issues with our son, and so our schedule is a bit all over the place getting him through his treatment. So I haven't really been able to carve out a easy time to do interview episodes with other dermatologists and veterinarians, which is one of the things I love to do. I love the short topics are great just so I can get you guys quick information, but I love really just diving into discussion questions. And so one of my ideas, kind of listening to other podcasts, um, especially like some of the motivational ones I listen to that aren't even veterinary related, was to do kind of a question and answer or a mailbag or some of them do voicemail um, type questions. And so I put this story up and I got lots of great questions. Um, I can't get to all of them because there are so many good ones, but I pulled out the ones that I think are going to give us just a really good guidance into some of the more common things I was seeing. So question number one of our Q&A about canine atopic dermatitis. How often do you see atopic dermatitis cause otitis externa in dogs versus food allergies? This is a great question. Um, and let me just say a lot. <laughs> I see a lot of atopic dermatitis lead to otitis externa. Traditionally, there used to be a saying, and you know, sometimes people still throw it around called ears and rears. Essentially, if you had a dog that had lots of ear infections and lots of rear issues, whether that was, you know, paritis around the rear or scooting or GI issues, that you should absolutely think food allergy. And, you know, some of, for a lot of cases that is true, but what we do know is that any sort of paritis towards the rear can be caused by a multitude of things. It doesn't have to just be food allergy, and that goes true with ear infections too. So if I have a very young dog, let's say like a year, and they've been dealing with issues for several months, like they had you know, recurrent or nonstop episodes of otitis since they were six months of age, I'm totally going to do a food trial. Like that's the the difficult thing about food allergy is it's never in my eyes really wrong to do a diet trial because food can be very sneaky, but you want to make sure you do it appropriately um, and that you kind of know how to manage that, which I have other podcast episodes about because they can be very hard to do. A lot of dogs that have food allergies concurrently have atopic dermatitis. So they're not the ones that you just switch their diet, do it for eight weeks, take them off, and they're completely normal. A lot of them, they're better, but then they still kind of break out with some paritis or infections because they have atopic dermatitis concurrently. And that's what can be make it very, very difficult. Um, but I definitely see atopic dermatitis cause otitis externa all the time. So if you have, you can have seasonal otitis and then that's a little bit easier to pick up on. But, you know, if you've done the diet trial, if you've done a couple diet trials, if you really want to rule out food allergy in this particular case and you're still getting ear infections, just know that it is very common for us to see atopic dermatitis cause otitis. Really all the clinical signs of atopic dermatitis and food allergy 
can be identical. That's what can make it really, really difficult. So it is a very common thing that we see. Uh, question number two, what is your opinion between having anal sac issues and atopic dermatitis? And this is a very interesting question. You know, traditionally, if I see a dog who does have a lot of anal sac issues, um, I do really hone in on diet. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like if they're not expressing them well, if they're impacting them well, you know, everything coming out of the body through the gastrointestinal system, obviously is going to be related to diet, nutrition, things like that. But again, there was a paper that actually this paper looked at anal pruritus. <laughs> and so anal pruritus, though I know is a little bit different than anal sac issues, they identify could be due to lots of different things. You know, it can be due to food allergy. It can be due to flea allergy. It can be due to atopic dermatitis, among other things. So I think there's some anal sac issues that if you are having a lot of itch and pruritus and they're kind of right there by the skin, I don't know that we can definitively say there's absolutely no way that atopy could be contributing. I think there's anal sac issues that are dietarily um, related. I think there's anal sac issues personally that have nothing to do with our allergies at all. So I definitely would want to control atopy. I can't say I've seen a dog with atopy that just anal sac issues were an issue. Um, but certainly we do see a lot of anal sac issues probably just due to pruritus and inflammation. So I think that there could be a correlation, but in general we do tend to think of things like food allergies um, or you know non-allergic things at all. So possible probably not as common. Question number three, how can we improve skin barrier? Well, that's like a whole podcast episode in itself. And I have a few podcast episodes. If you guys look back in the history of the podcast that go over skin barrier, and there's quite a few, there's some longer episodes about topical therapy, um, and then some shorter episodes about the importance of this too. But the short answer is a lot. There's a lot of things that we can do. I think there's going to be a lot more products other things that come around, honestly, probably in the next you know, like five years, skin barrier is really gaining a lot of attention in the last decade of allergies, even since I've been, you know, involved solely in dermatology and veterinary medicine. It's important, you know, the antipyretics and systemic therapies are super important, but we have to recognize that besides the fact that these dogs have hyperactive immune systems, for lack of a better term, you know, they get exposed to something that a normal dog doesn't care about, right? Let's take a dog with dust mite allergies. Normal dogs can be around dust. They don't get itchy. They don't get infections. But a dog that has allergies, and my own dog is like this, she has a dust mite allergy, they not only have their immune system overreact to that, causing them to be pruritic, and there's a whole itch pathway that happens within these dogs that is cytokine driven, which is why we're seeing a lot of the therapies be related to cytokines rather than histamine. It's very cytokine driven in dogs. What we also know is that there's abnormalities in the skin barrier. And that's the outside inside hypothesis. The inside outside hypothesis is your inside is reacting to things on the outside. The outside inside hypothesis is things from the outside make their way in because you have a genetic defect in your skin barrier. There's lots of studies that show if you biopsy even skin of dogs that looks normal but they have allergies, it's abnormal. Even skin that's not erythematous and scaly, they have an abnormal skin barrier. So they have little cracks and crevices that kind of allow these things to penetrate and both of those hypotheses are true. You have an abnormal skin barrier, it lets things 
deeper than they should, right? The skin's a protective organ. Hair and skin's protective. So if we have an abnormal skin barrier, things make their way in that really shouldn't. But then on top of that, you have an abnormal immune response. So both of things work concurrently. So that's where if we do improve skin barrier, and how do we do that? Well, lots of different options. You know, topical's my favorite, right? Because we are very fortunate that the skin, the skin is external. We can touch it. We can put stuff on it. We can put stuff directly on the organ that's being affected. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. And one of my favorite things is going to be bathing, right? Like my own dog, if we don't bathe her once a week, it is clear. Like she does so much better when we bathe her. She's also a pit boxer mix. So she's got short hair. So her hair is not as protective compared to some longer haired breeds where that's going to be more protective and keep pollens away from their skin. So we have to think about that in some of these dog breeds, you know, especially if they have shorter hair coats, things are penetrating a bit easier. So bathing one, just the the process, the mechanical process of bathing helps to get things off the skin. But then two, using products that are clinically proven to also help skin barrier. So one of my favorites is going to be the Duxo line because the Ophetrium in it actually helps the skin barrier. So even if I have a dog who's not infected, I will have them bathe with things like, you know, Duxo Calm. But there's lots of other great products out there too, where really they're just meant to help improve the skin barrier and you're doing it as a maintenance. If they're going to bathe anyway, we're going to remove things. We might as well use products that are going to be beneficial to the skin. And there's lots of different options out there, but Duxo is the one that I tend to use a lot just based on their literature and their research associated with their efficacy. Um, Beyond that, nutrition. So we're also seeing a big push for not nutrition so much as food allergy, but nutrition to help the skin barrier. So think of the diet such as Hills Derm Complete, uh, Royal Canin Skin Support, Purina DRM. So if you get through a diet trial and you don't feel like the food has been as beneficial, you, and the owner's asking, well, what do I feed now if we don't think they're food allergic? then put them on one of these diets that can really help their skin barrier. You know, my dog's on a skin barrier diet. It definitely helps a lot. You know, the nice thing about Derm Complete is you have the novel protein of egg, and then you also have the um, histidine complex that helps with skin barrier function and atopy. So you kind of can uh, attribute both of those at the same time. But improving skin barrier through nutrition, I think, is just really helpful because they have to eat anyway. So if there's not a reason they need another diet, why not be able to feed them in a way that's going to help something we know is defective in them, such as their skin barrier. And then, of course, there's supplements and lots of other things out there, too. Um, Retinal Ultra is a supplement that's clinically proven to help with their skin barrier, Um, you know, besides... uh, shampoos, the topicals like the pipettes and the wipes and the mousses can also be really helpful. So I would say the three biggest categories would be topical, nutritional, supplemental. Question number four, how do you justify the cost of use of cytopoint and apoquil for paritis and allergies? Well, I mean, to me, the benefit of that is if I can control the allergy better, with less side effects, right? Because steroids are very cheap, but we just know there's lots of side effects that can occur with them depending on the animal. Then one, that pet's going to be more comfortable and that's what's most important, right? But two, it's actually going to be more cost effective in a lot of these patients if they're maintained. So the cost of something like apoclor cytopoint may seem like a lot depending on the size of the dog and every owner's very different on finances and goals with their pet, which is why I love dermatology. It's always a puzzle we have to put together for that particular owner. 
But don't forget infections. I mean, they're expensive, right? It's an extra veterinary visit. It's extra medications that have to be used. Um, that pet, their quality of life is not as good. So costs in the long run, I mean, it's the same thing when I have a conversation with owners about immunotherapy. Of course, there's a cost associated with it, but in the long run, if we can minimize infections, if we can minimize veterinary visits, it's all honestly usually more cost effective in the long term um, life of that animal. So those are things that we really need to consider. And every pet's really different as far as what doses work for them. Do they need one antipyretic? Do they need two? But it's really important to look at the cost of the entire pet with allergies, veterinary visits, cytologies, diagnostics, skin cultures. If their allergies aren't as controlled and they're always breaking out, that gets really costly with antibiotics and more topicals and cultures and cytology. So it's not just a one-off medication in most of these cases. We really have to think about all of the, those costs that they can occur incur. And that's how I can justify that to owners. And same goes, like I said, with immunotherapy. The hard part is with immunotherapy, it takes a while to see how well they do. Um, whereas apical and cytopoint, you're going to know pretty quickly if they're a dog that responds nicely to those medications. Question five, when do you always reach for apical over cytopoint? You know, in general, it's, it's really case by case. In general, if I have a dog who's over a year of age, I like using apical during the diagnostic workup. And the benefit of that is the start and stop, right? Like apical, you start it, Within four hours, you tend to get like a pretty quick response. You stop it, you know, pretty quickly within a day or two how that pet's doing. So say I have a dog who I think might just be solely flea allergic. They're miserable. We're going to treat infection, but we deserve to make them comfortable. But before I get that owner, you know, ready to allergy test when it might not be necessary, I want to make sure they're in good flea control and rule that out as the sole cause. So the nice thing is I can start Apoquil treat the infection, start good isoxazoline flea control, no matter which one you use, recheck them in a month. If they're doing great and infections are gone, perfect. Keep them on the isoxazoline. Try to stop Apoquil and have the owner update me. If they do wonderful just being on flea prevention, fabulous. We know, right? And then we don't have to worry about allergy testing them. Same goes for diet. If I have a dog who's over a year of age, um, I like Apoquil to keep them comfortable while I start the diet change. And I tell owners, if your dog's doing great, you know, in a few days is the apical, not the food, but they can be comfortable while we get those eight weeks in. And then at the end, if they're doing great, cool. We try to stop the apical. We'll know very quickly if just the food controls them or not. So you can do this with Cytopoint and there's certain instances where we have to, right? Like if they're a younger dog, so apical is labeled for 12 months or over. So if they're a younger dog, um, then I will reach for Cytopoint. But because every dog metabolizes Cytopoint differently, it's labeled for four to eight weeks. You just have to read through that a little bit more. Um, also, just based on the mechanism of how Cytopoint works, if I have a dog that has a bit more infl an inflamed response to them, you know, they both can have some anti-inflammatory effects just by stopping paritis, but Apoquil is going to have more effect based on its mechanism of action on other cytokines. Cytopoint only affects IL-31. Apoquil mostly affects IL-31, but we also know 2, 4, 6, 13 interleukins are affected too. So sometimes if I have a dog who's a bit more inflamed, then I'll reach for Apoquil. Those are probably the main ones, the diagnostic workup for a dog who's a year or older, just because I can start, stop, and kind of get my answers a bit faster. 
Um, and then if they're a bit more on the inflamed side, but there's always shades of gray when talking about allergies and, you know, it kind of depends on, do they have other issues besides derm that we have to be concerned about? Um, what is the owner able to do? You know, certainly if I had a one and a half year old dog come in that I wanted to do a diet trial on, but the owner says they hate taking pills and that's a huge stress for them. Well, then I'm going to reach for Cytopoint. So there's always shades of grays and exceptions for these, but those are the main things I worry about. Uh, question number six, do you worry about immunosuppression with Apoquil? It's a great question. So the FDA has actually, um, I think last year, they recategorized Apoquil from immunosuppressive to immunomodulatory. So, and that's because it doesn't really show since it's been around for a while, like it's not really a drug that we worry about immunosuppression with. But clearly, it's going to modulate the immune system. And if you look at the actual label on the bottle, it does say to be cautious of things like if they have, you know, a systemic or deep infection or, you know, being concerned about exacerbating neoplasia. Um, so I don't necessarily get worried about immunosuppression, but based on the labeling, if I have a dog who has an underlying neoplastic process, if they have, say, like a systemic fungal infection or just like a wicked deep pyoderma, like I'm probably going to address those things first if I can within utilize something like Cytopoint because Cytopoint, based on its mechanism, you know, and safety, I would use in those cases. And then once we get through those infections, if we, you know, if, if we can get through them, say like a deep pyoderma and they're not responding, we could always change to something like Apoquil. But it also depends on what the dog responds to. And there's always difficult cases where, you know, if they don't respond to anything else, we will have to reach for something like Apoquil just for a quality of life standpoint. But it is important to recognize that it was reclassified to immunomodulatory by the FDA. Uh, question number seven. So kind of the last two questions we'll go over today. Uh, question number seven, why don't you recommend doing allergy testing without doing immunotherapy? I am so glad someone asked this question because it is super important. Okay. Allergies are expensive. Allergies are expensive. You guys, like I have an allergic dog. This is what I do for a living. She's expensive. So why don't I recommend? Well, first of all, let's just put this in there. I know we're talking about canine atopic dermatitis. We don't food allergy test. Just do not run food allergy tests. I don't know why some of the labs, even the reputable labs still run them. That is one thing most of us as dermatologists agree on. There's no really validity to it. It's just another test that we have to run. The results we really can't trust. I like to spend my owner's money like I would spend my own money. So we don't food allergy test. Now, environmental allergy testing, definitely we do. You know, as dermatologists, most of us prefer skin testing, but there are some really good debates and um, about serum testing, depending on the lab, not all of them are created equal. But even if you could run a serum panel and say it's a lab that I think is really, you know, valid and reasonable, why shouldn't you do it if you're not going to do immunotherapy? Because it is expensive. And the reality is you're not going to be able to avoid 99% of these things. Um, I think one time since I've been doing this for 11 years now, I have had a dog that I skin tested. The only big positive that came up was horse dander. And that dog actually lived on a horse farm and they realized that when they put him in the horse stalls is when he was the worst, which is kind of crazy. The thousands of tests I've done otherwise, I have not been able to just avoid the allergen. These things are ubiquitous. They're not going to be things we can avoid. So 
why allergy tests? I mean, sure, I guess if they just want the information, but it's not cheap, right? It's like a few hundred dollars depending on the test, um, depending on if you combo test, if you refer them to us for skin testing, even if you do a serum test yourself, it is more money to not help us. So owners have to know why we want to allergy test. It's really hard for owners if they don't understand, they get a test back and they're just like, well, what do I do about this? And it's like, well, I mean, you know, we can bathe more, but we could have done that anyway without running the test and spending your money. So ultimately it just doesn't gain us anything if we're not gonna do immunotherapy. And if you're going to do immunotherapy, you have to know how to do it. I know that the um, companies put out these schedules of things you can follow, and I think that's a fine starting point, but there's lots of things we're doing with immunotherapy. We're manipulating doses. We're still utilizing other medications while we're starting them on immunotherapy. You have to communicate appropriately with the owners. Infections still happen. You know, a lot of cases, they don't only end up on immunotherapy the rest of their life, but it could still be really helpful for them and owners have to understand what that looks like. So it's actually more complicated than just following a schedule and that's what you're on. And so you have to make sure that you feel comfortable with that. Or if you are able to referring to a dermatologist, because it is, it's messy and there's lots of things that we have to communicate and do while we're managing these cases. All right. Last question for this little Q and A on canine atopic dermatitis. How do you know if immunotherapy is working if you are concurrently using multimodal treatment? Oh, wonderful question. I love ending um, this discussion with immunotherapy. There's lots of ways <laughs> that we know. And again, this is why it's not straightforward and you have to make sure you're comfortable if you're gonna do immunotherapy of what we're looking for. Because um, what I tell owners when I sit down and we start having the allergy discussion and we're deciding if immunotherapy is gonna be for them or not. I like to tell them, you know, it takes up to a year to work. And what I what I think of is we have um, patients that are A students, B students, D, C students, and failures. So they kind of get graded, right? Because it just is easier for them to wrap their head around that. So an A student to me would be within a year, 18 months, they're only on immunotherapy and really nothing else besides maybe good flea prevention and like topicals. And that's fabulous and that happens. I had two of those last week where I just haven't seen them for a year. They have done great. They haven't broken out for a year and we have those students. Then there's B and C students, which are probably the more common things we see with immunotherapy. B and C students still need other things. So let's say like a B student does great, but summer we still always need Apoquil or we get like one or two episodes of otitis a year but um, they used to get it like, you know, every two months. So we've significantly cut back on the frequency of infections or they used to have to live on cephalexin and now they break out a couple times so we can manage them topically, right? That'd be like a B student for me. A C student would be, we still need other things. So like we also need apical year round or we still need cytopoint year round, but they're doing better compared to what they were um, doing when they were only on that therapy before immunotherapy. Like maybe they, that combination controls them and we were struggling to control them with just a sole therapy previous to that. Or they used to need Epicol and Cytopoint. Now immunotherapy and Cytopoint keeps them under control. Like that would be probably a C student to me. Unfortunately, there are failures. And that, you know, 25 to 30%, depending on where you look in the literature, don't respond. And so that's really difficult. So why is that important for owners to know? Because success 
for a patient isn't just you're on that and nothing else. Success is everything we talked about. So how do I know if it's working? You know, I look back in the literature or the, sorry, the, um, that patient's record. So say they've been on it for a year and a half and we're kind of deciding, is this immunotherapy helpful? How many infections have they had? They used to break out otitis every single month and now they've had just two in a year. Cool. That's an amazing response to immunotherapy. Um, have we been able to uh, step back on some of the medications? Again, were they a pet who needed apical year round and now they just need it in the summer, but they can get off it other times of the year? That would be a sign that immunotherapy is working. They used to need Cytopoint every four weeks. Now they need it, you know, three times a year kind of as needed. So those are all the things that we're looking for. So when I start immunotherapy, I tell owners we're going to stay on the treatment that is working at this point, the bathing, we're going to stay on the antiparitics, whether that's apical cytopoint, you know, cyclosporin, steroids in some cases. We're going to stay on those. But when we get to the point where we feel like, okay, like we haven't broken out for a while, we um, have been doing really well, we're not having breakthrough paritis, then we're going to slowly try to take whatever medication away and monitor for those things. So I want them to be comfortable. What you don't want to do is start immunotherapy and stop all the medications because they're just going to be a disaster and get infected and be really uncomfortable. So again, this is where dermatology can get really messy because you kind of have to know when's the time to start pulling things back. It depends on the owner. It depends on that, that particular case. I have had super early responders where after a few months, they're starting to show us some success, but most of them are more in that six, eight, 12 month range, even a little bit over a year. And so that's where you have to really communicate with owners and set those expectations and let them know, like we are still potentially going to have infections, but we're going to look at frequency. We're going to look at severity. We're going to look at the medications that we have to utilize long-term to manage your dog and kind of decide at that point if immunotherapy has been a help to us. And honestly, for most of our cases, we do see a good benefit, which is why we're such advocates for doing it. I hope you guys found this helpful. This was just kind of a really fun way to get more into the nitty gritty of the particular questions you guys have about a bigger topic. Um, if this is something that you did enjoy, please reach out to me, you know, DM me, um, reach out, comment on the social media post that goes out with this because if this is something you guys enjoy then i'm going to keep doing it um it's just a fun way where i can almost do these more interview pinpoint questions for you guys and really get the answers to you guys that you're looking for um and so if you enjoyed it i would love for you to let me know <laughs>